Reminder, um, there was a lady who had her, her back was all bent over and, and ultimately Jesus healed her by casting out a demon. So we have this weird power of the devil behind physical ailments. We talked about that and, and what we can learn from that last time. But the reason why I bring that up is we're getting into this next verse in verse 18 and following. We see the power of the devil's kingdom contrasted with the power of the Lord's kingdom. Right. The board is blocking half of the bleachers over there. So verse uh, 18, the mustard seed and the leaven. 
he said, therefore, so therefore connects it. I mean, therefore, when someone says, if, if you just walk up to a random person and you introduce yourself and you say, therefore, you just don't do that, right? Therefore means we're talking about something and now what I'm about to say is connected to what, I, what just happened or what I'm about to talk about. So he said, therefore, having just healed this, having just healed this woman um, by, by casting out the devil, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So we get the kingdom of God in contrast to the, what we see in this this power is possessing power and the devil that's hurting this lady. Jesus uses it as an opportunity to teach on the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God like? All right. And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man takes and sows in his garden and it grew and become a, became a tree. So what, what are we to make of this? How is the kingdom of God like a mustard seed that's sown and then becomes a big tree. There are some obvious connections and then maybe some not so obvious. This is thinking through that. How is the kingdom of God like a mustard seed? Well, what, what is the kingdom of God? Let's, let's figure out that first. And where is the kingdom of God? Very good, Gretchen, mouthing the right answer. The kingdom of God is wherever the king is, Right? And so we can certainly say the kingdom of God is heaven, but also includes here among us. Jesus makes his presence among us, so we, know we, can, we can rightly talk about the kingdom of God here. And whenever Jesus shows up in a place, he talks about the kingdom of God drawing near. So the kingdom of God is really wherever Jesus is, but in what way is it like this mustard seed? So this, this really small thing, seemingly weak, in the eyes of the world. Seemingly nothing and barely even visible, at least initially, in the eyes of the world. How does God's kingdom come? The catechism scholars. How does God kingdom, God's kingdom come? God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when he gives us his Holy Spirit so we believe his word and lead godly lives. How does the Holy Spirit come? Through God's word. So you're talking an entire kingdom and the, the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit is delivered through the spoken word. The spoken word is quite a weak vessel, unimpressive to the world. Also this morning we had a baptism. So water, unimpressive to the eye. So, at, so we put water on a baby joined to God's word and the devil is cast out and heaven is rained down upon this child. And what do we see? A crying baby. Weakness to the eye. And yet, what is God saying about this baby? I'm taking my cross and I'm giving it to her. Lord's Supper, bread and wine. Not the, not the greatest or most impressive versions of bread and wine either. Just physical stuff. 
If God is making himself known in this world, you think he would do it the way like, the way Aladdin makes himself known in Disney's Aladdin when he comes into his Agrabah, whatever the, <laughs> riding an elephant, all the princes and all the guys with the swords and dancing around. Now Jesus comes in humility and weakness. He rides, he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey and his kingdom, he is most king when he's wearing not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And so we here we hear see the kingdom of God being ultimately this kingdom that's, that's established by Jesus on his throne, the cross, which is God working through weakness to bring about great, great results of power. But it doesn't look like great results of power to the eye, does it? When Jesus is up on the cross dying, that's perhaps the weakest thing that a person can do, die, be murdered at the hands of others. And yet Jesus is their most king for us. And so too it continues in the way that we think about the kingdom of, the kingdom of God in his church on earth. Weakness, humility, lowliness. What, what's, what's central among us is the word and sacraments through which God is working. And then God even puts his name upon you and he says, you are holy and righteous and I'm with you. I'm covering you. I'm covering all your sins. And you look in the mirror and say, well, I don't feel holy and righteous, right? My, my record of sins doesn't seem to indicate a bunch of perfection. And yet, what does God say about you in his word? Your sins are forgiven, that you are holy and righteous, that he has covered all of your sins. So God's, God's kingdom isn't really so much about what is seen with the eye, but about what he's doing. So a seed is sown and it grows. Do you see, I, mean, I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a mustard seed, but either way, if you can watch it, you're not gonna watch it grow. I mean, think of that's kind of, you, can't, you cannot be watching it grow because if you're able to see it, where is it not? Under the ground. So you can't actually see it and yet it's growing. And who's growing it? God's growing it. And he promises that it's gonna grow big. Now, interesting here, the birds of the air is this, perhaps some say it's, it's the, the, the kingdoms of the, the world, the nations of the world, the Gentiles. So as it starts small and grows really big. Now we are blessed to have a, a relatively large congregation, relatively only in the sense that you walk into Willow Creek or <laughs> if you call it a church, uh, but you, you mean, there's certainly larger congregations to be found, more people. So we want to think about the kingdom of God stripped. Not, not, it's not about individual congregations, but wherever Jesus is, wherever Jesus is giving his gifts, we have the church, we have God's kingdom, and it doesn't stop when you die, right? So all the saints, as we remembered a couple weeks ago with All, all Saints Day, all the saints who are in heaven didn't check out. Now, our, our, in a very human way, our numbers, when someone dies, our numbers of members goes down. But God doesn't care about our books. He has his own. And his numbers don't go down. They only keep growing. Like a mustard tree. It grows and grows and grows and grows and grows incredibly large, right? 
So some helpful things to learn there about the Lord's kingdom and the Lord's church. His work is hidden. God's giving the growth. Also helpful to remember, in a, and also in a, in a very physical way, that God grants the growth to his kingdom in his time and in his way. Right? So have you ever tried to make plants grow by staring at them and commanding them? doesn't it just kind of happens and it happens I mean, you can you can water it fertilize or whatever God's kingdom is growing because he's the one who's fertilizing it and he's the one who brings the growth and the way that he grows it is bizarre too I mean wouldn't initially we have Jesus working great miracles sending out the disciples but he makes it very clear right away in the early church that his kingdom is going to be known not according to the physical working of miracles to the eye but it is faith that it's heard through the ear, right? Faith comes by hearing. And so we think, hey, you know what? Maybe more people would believe if, if, if God would just raise up somebody from the dead for us and parade them around in our midst, then we would believe. Well, that sounds remarkably familiar to what? Who said that same thing? The rich man, and where was he, where was he when he said that? in hell. So the wisdom of the rich man in hell is, if only someone would come back from the dead and tell my unbelieving brothers, then they would believe. And Jesus says, no, that's not going to do the trick. They have everything that they need. They have what? Moses and the prophets, aka the Bible, let them hear them. So we know God's, God's bringing about the growth of his kingdom not in the way that we think. So it really gets into a lot of the, the, the ways we can start to confuse. It's, it's, it's the cliche or the, um, the name attached to the ideology is the church growth movement is trying to take like the lessons that we've learned from like business seminars, how to have an effective business, how to have an effective group, whatever, how to get more people to come to your thing and you take that and you try to apply it to the church so we can get more, more numbers according to things that we're going to do, having programs that we're going to try to establish. And it has nothing to do necessarily with the doctrine, but it's all about ways to trick people in. And really, it's typically bait and switch because if you actually say the stuff that Jesus said, like today, we had like all these visiting families from like the school who are in the choir. Kids choir sounded great today. Kudos to, um, to them and their families. But there's some, some families there who are like, okay, this is my first shot at them. Their first time in their Lutheran pew and right away we're singing, and flames on flames shall ravage earth to Satan be delivered. And they're like, wow, I don't know if I want to go to this church anymore. Well, obviously, you know, we, the, the law says what it says so that the gospel can be what it is too, right? But if we wanted to be really, if we want to be really like seeker friendly, we want to strip the scriptures of truth because it's super inconvenient when Paul says things like homosexuality is bad. The fifth commandment regarding murder is super inconvenient when it comes to abortion. The Lord's saying the man and woman, he created them and the two shall become one flesh. So he establishes marriage. That's not really the greatest way to grow a church today either. 
So we drop these things so that we can scratch people's itch itching ears and give them what they want to hear and get our numbers up according to what we think, right? Or we just need to be faithful. So we are faithful in preaching God's word and the growth comes where he, where he wants it. It's super easy for me to say that with a gym full of wonderful people, but I got brother pastors out in the cornfields of Iowa or central Mississippi and all this where they got like 10 people on their table, or one table of Bible study. And we're, we're kind of hoping we're gonna get through next week. So it's helpful for them also to remember that the church is bigger than the, their congregation. And the Lord gives the growth as he sees fit. So you kind of never know, like all of a sudden, like I remember in, uh, like in high school, like Tim Beneke, no one, like my, my church in Mississippi, no one like goes to Mississippi unless they're forced to go there. So I remember Tim Beneke, who if you know the full story is part of why you got stuck with me in, the, uh, in a way, but Tim Beneke, who used to be a member here, was my elder in Mississippi when I was a kid. But he had been here first, and then he got transferred to Mississippi because that's where dreams come true. <laughs> so Tim Beneke, he just gets moved down there with his family, and they're looking for a church. And Good Shepherd's right there, and so they go. And then when, he got, when they closed that branch and he moved back to Naperville, they moved. That's how it goes, right? We're in Illinois, there's Lutherans everywhere, so we're blessed, right? So we wanna be mindful the church is bigger than us. And more importantly, it's not really up to what we see with the eye. And we don't wanna to try to use, use like worldly tactics to bait and switch people into the kingdom because it doesn't work. Jesus doesn't fish with, a bait, with bait and hook. What style does he use? A net. Have you ever been fishing with a small child who's holding a net trying to catch minnows? How many fish do you catch? None. Rule number one with fishing is don't disturb the water. Like fly fishing in Colorado, the idea is this water, the, the line just kind of carefully sets down. And you don't want to disturb the water at all because the trout will scurry away. So you want to trick them into biting it and then you hook them. The net does not work like that. You just throw it in and you're going to get whoever's there, whatever's there. Jesus says, Throw the net in the water here. Ah, it doesn't seem like that's a good place to drop a net, Jesus. It does, it's not up to you. Throw it in. And sometimes there's growth, sometimes there's not. We just throw, we cast the net. And the net sometimes scares the fish away, but we're to be faithful, right? So there's the, the, the Lord's kingdom that comes in weakness that's, that's growing regardless of what we see with our eyes. Uh, and the church continues to grow in heaven. Let's see, what else do I wanna say about that? That's good enough, let's keep rolling. The near, oh, and the leaven, I mean, just a shout out to those of you who like bread. I've never even tried to do this, but apparently bread doesn't just, you have to like be patient. If, you, if you're not patient making bread, what do you end up with? Communion wafers, <laughs> which is the idea, right? The unleavened bread, because we don't have time, because we gotta get out of Egypt, right? And so we're not, so get rid of the leaven, eat in haste and get out of here. So the leaven of the bread takes time and it grows and spreads. The narrow door, this is what I really wanna, if I don't get to anything else, I'm okay with it. Narrow door, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, 
teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? What are the boundaries of the kingdom? Who's in and who's not? And what category can I use to, to draw the line? How do I measure them? And also, will those who are saved be few? I know that I'm good, but I'm thinking about everybody else. Notice he doesn't say, Lord Jesus, like what are the blind people? Every time Jesus finds a blind guy, what's he say? What's the blind person say? Have mercy. Have mercy on me. So the only kind of people who come up to Jesus and don't ask for mercy are the people who think they don't need it, right? And so here's this guy standing before Jesus, worried about, or not worried, but interested in what's happening to everybody else, trying to limit God's kingdom. Who's in, who's not, who gets mercy, who doesn't? So this is a law question. How do we determine if someone's in or not? So how, how, does, how do you measure anything? A ruler? And what does God use to measure us? as being good or evil, right or wrong, in or out? The law. That shows clearly the line. So if you ask Jesus a law question, he will give you a law answer. He'll give you what you need. This guy needed to hear the law. And so that context is crucial for what comes next. He says to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in, you, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Not good news for this guy who's standing there. Stri you, if you're worried about it, you strive to enter through the narrow door. So what does it mean to strive to enter through the narrow door. What's the narrow door? Look at the picture I have there on your handout. It's a great picture. The person who designed this picture actually had a good idea at depicting the wrong way to interpret this. That's the best construction. What's, look at this picture, it's brilliant. So what's the idea, you art interpreter people? You had to be like Jesus to get in. Wait a second. If I could be like Jesus, I wouldn't need Jesus. But also, I mean, there's other interesting points here because it is true law. What's, what's, that, what's on the ground next to him? I guess we're supposed to think it's a bag of stuff, right? Does our stuff get in our way? Can our stuff keep us out of heaven? Well, Jesus says exactly that many times. If you're going to make an idol out of your stuff, it doesn't fit through the door. 
So you're not going to get in if you want to hold on to it. Like the lady who, who like, in Indiana Jones, she's trying to get the cup, and then she, like, Indy's like, take my hand, and then she... If, she's, if you're interested in material possessions, you can stay behind with those. So if, the, if God's waiting on me to become more like, is that striving? Yeah. That's the point. That's, that's what Jesus is saying to this guy. It's hard to get in. Strive, struggle, fight to enter into the narrow door. Problem is, flip back if you've got your Bible, handle, Bible handy. Flip over to Luke Luke 12, which from our time, that's like two or three months ago. But from Jesus' time, he just said this. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke 12. 12.32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To do what with the kingdom? Give you the kingdom. That's a, that's a great word, give. What, if God's giving it, then it is by definition a gift. And what do you have to do to get a gift from someone? Nothing. If you have to do anything, it's no longer a gift, but it's a wage. Right? You've earned it. So it's the, it's the Father's good, fear not. The, 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 the Father's giving you the kingdom. He's giving out gifts. But if you want it, according to the law, what are the boundaries? What are the limits? Who's in? Who's out? Then that's what Jesus will give you according to the law. Strive. You want, it to, be, you want it to know the limit? Be like me. Be perfect. Set aside all the, all the things of this world. And then, this is great. For, I tell, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So if I'm the guy who Jesus is talking to, I'm thinking, am, am I able? Am I doing it now? Have I done it enough to know that I can go to bed tonight knowing that if I die, I, I'm going to heaven? Am I striving enough? Or am I going to be like, I mean, this scary picture. The master of the house comes, shuts the door. You're outside knocking, Lord, open to us. And he will say, I don't know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, notice you, not them, not those. Are, Lord, are those who are going to be saved be few? No, it's you. You will begin to say, hey, we ate and drank. So right away, when, 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 when condemnation comes, how does the person respond? Not by clinging to what Jesus did, but we. Look what we did. We ate and drank. We ate and drank in your, in your presence. There's something in me. I've been around you. I've been around you. You taught in our streets. I recognize that because I recognize your teaching. I've heard your teaching in the synagogues. You were teaching in our streets. So I, I felt like I've been in his presence. I've, taught, he, I've, I've listened to his teaching. Is that not striving enough? And if you were trying to make a list of your striving and being able, could you come up with a list any different than we ate and drank in your presence? What are we doing in the Lord's Supper? And he's teaching in our streets. He's teaching in our sanctuary. I, I'm trying to do everything I, I think I can. 
And then only judge, it's not enough. If you're going to point to yourself, it's not enough. I tell you, I don't know where you came from. Depart from me. If you're going to point to your own, yourself and your own merit, it's not a gift. It's got to be a gift. David. But so the, this is the, the, the perfect tension between law and gospel, though. Sell your possession and give them to the needy. First of all, just to go back to 12, just to refresh our memory, he doesn't say sell everything you have, but he might as well have. You just get, give to the needy is what the law tells us to do, and you should be doing it. You have more than you need. You probably don't know enough homeless people anyway. But so like to help people who have need, that, that's our calling. But what sets us free to do that is we've received the kingdom as a gift. I know what a gift looks like because he gave it to me and now I can give. So we're still living from the law. We're in a good way to love and serve our neighbor. He tells us what the law is, but it does, that's not the kingdom. I'm not, giving, I'm not giving everything away so that I can get the kingdom. I've already gotten it. It's a gift. I'm giving everything away because I don't need it because I got the kingdom already, right? So having the kingdom frees me up to be generous. But my generosity doesn't bring me the kingdom. But yeah, but if you want to point to yourself, this is the problem. Have you given away enough? Have you given away everything you have? Have you sold everything you have and given it to the needy? There's always more. There's always more you can do. Do you look like Jesus enough? Are you going to be standing there on the last day inside the narrow gate, the cross-shaped gate? Or are you going to be the ones standing outside saying, I heard your teaching, I ate and drank in your presence, but yet I'm standing outside and you're saying you don't know me? This is rough law for that dude who's standing in front of Jesus saying, Lord, what are the boundaries? What's the limit? What do I have to do to make sure I'm in? Why are they out and I'm in? Because I'm obviously in, otherwise I'd be asking you for mercy right now. And so Jesus says, with the law like he always does to us, we like to take up the law and use it on everybody else. Jesus takes the law and he points it back at him. You should, be, you should be very, very worried if you think this is not a gift. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, and how can I believe in one in whom I haven't heard? Says Paul, right? So I can't, it's a wonderful thing. Ultimately, faith is, is completely, it's completely passive gift. And we try to say, well, I mean, but there are, there are some people who believe and some people who really believe, you know, like you and me. And I, we know that because when you look at my life, and you look at your life, aren't we better than those guys over there? I mean, they say they believe, but we, we really believe. And just like that, 
We're standing next to this guy, standing in front of Jesus, saying, Jesus, are those who are going to be saved be few? Because they're not trying as hard as I am. And Jesus says, oh, yeah? It's not up to you. It's a gift. Stop trying to limit the kingdom, which is why he follows this up with, not what are the boundaries, but he says, and people will come from east and west and north and south. They're coming from all over. It shatters the limits. There's not a border. See? It's not like the edges of the kingdom of God. They're coming from all over. There's no limit. There's no boundary. He dies for all. And those who are last will be first. Those who you think according to their own merit, their status in this world, you think they would be first, especially in the context of Pharisees. And those who are talking to Jesus, those who you think would be first, they're last. And the ones who have no merit of their own that, that qualifies them as being anything at all, they're first. Because if you got nothing in your pockets, then Jesus fills them up. But if you're going to try to hold up something, something you have, Jesus will let you hold it, but you're not going to be able to squeeze it in the door with you. See? Great, great dynamic here of this. We, you, it's a great teaching of the importance of context. Because I can take, strive to enter the narrow, the narrow door, and like, wait, so I just preached the gospel that's pretty clear about Jesus dying for all my sins and saying it is finished, and then he turns to you and says, now drag you, strive. And you're like, well, how do I, so he said it was finished, but now I've got to strive. How can I know I've strived enough to make sure that what he did on the cross was finished? Wait, wait a second, he said it was finished, finished. Stop looking at yourself. But if you want to look at yourself, he'll let you do it enough to scare you. Stop. Isn't that great? Tremendous gospel, tremendous gospel teaching, but it's in the, I mean, Jesus is doing the law here on this guy. And he's done it a few times in the context, people coming up to Jesus, asking about everybody else. And Jesus turns the law on them to shatter them. And then lastly, Lament over Jerusalem. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, why would, might they be saying this? Is it true that Herod wants to kill him? It seems so. It kind of played out that way. So, but the, 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 weren't, whose fault was it that, that Herod killed him? The Pharisees? So if they would just kept their mouth shut, Jesus could have stuck around. So maybe they're just trying to get rid of Jesus because his, his teaching is proving to be quite inconvenient. He's causing some trouble among them. Um, so maybe using the fear of Herod to, to scare them out. This is the Herod, the Herod who killed John the Baptist not too long ago in, in Jesus' time, timeline here. Um... But is it, it could be possible, I mean, the commentators kind of give both ways. It could be possible that you got some Pharisees who have come around. And we know that's, we know that's the case, like at the cross and after the resurrection. I mean, Pharisees are coming, but all it, in every case when Jesus bothers talking to the Pharisees with the law, he is bringing the gift of repentance. Now, not all will have it. 
But if it's just, if it's just that the Pharisees are damned, why does Jesus bother talking to them at all? Right? So Jesus talking to the Pharisees is itself bringing the, bringing the repentance, bringing the law that brings the gift of repentance with it. And so as Jesus is going along teaching the Pharisees, some of them perhaps have come along and they're actually concerned. And this, and, and this would be the same, the same prayer that the disciples were saying to Jesus. We got to get out of here. They're going to, Jesus, they're trying to kill you. We don't want you to die, Jesus. We got to get out of here. Maybe that's the case. Um, it's hard, to, it's hard to know for sure. Like, there's no consensus on the commentaries, so I'm free to have no consensus within myself. Maybe both. Maybe both, uh, both kind of Pharisees were there. And he says to them, go and tell Ty Fox. <laughs> no. <laughs> I should do, like, this morning, whenever, like, we needed Henry to, to, to acolyte, where we had, we had Kenny, I should have said, hey, Kenny, go tell that fox that we need another acolyte. <laughs> no. So he's the fo- c- clever, crafty. So, Her- like, Herod's trying to, trying to do evil, sneaking about. I mean, that's the sense of the, the way that foxes get into the hen, the hen house and eat the eggs, kill the chickens, right? Trying to do damage. Um, but ultimately... This fox that, of what Herod is going to do is ultimately going to be doing God's purposes. Jesus knows what's going on here. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. So Jesus is dropping his resurrection prediction yet again, the third day. And these casting out the demons and performing cures is the thing that's taken off the Pharisees. In fact, do you remember the, the nail in the coffin uh, that they finally had the Pharisees seeking to kill him? Was when he, when he raised Lazarus. Right before, right at the start of Holy Week, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And the next thing, the Pharisees at that point sought to, sought to kill him. And they're going to use Herod to do it. But hey, on the third day, I finished my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So what has Jesus just prophesied? What has he he just told us? That he's going to die in Jerusalem and that he's a prophet. So this is, we talked a little bit about prophets in previous weeks, but this is helpful. Remember, we often, we often, uh, conflate prophets with psychics or future fortune tellers. So the idea of a prophet is that they can tell the future. Sometimes that was the case that the prophets were telling the future, but it was never on their own merits. They don't have a crystal ball. What, where are the prophets getting this picture? Whenever in the Old Testament, every time a prophet speaks, they are speaking whose word? God's. Which is why when, when you have the calling of the prophets... What are they, like Ezekiel is a classic one where, where God's, poor Ezekiel went through the ringer, man. But God tells him to eat the scroll, right? He's actually putting God's word in his mouth. God tells Isaiah, I'm putting my words on your lips. So the prophet is speaking only what God has told him to say so that when he speaks it, God's word won't return void. So God sends out the prophet to speak God's word to bring about repentance and faith. That's the job of the prophet. Sometimes God's word of harsh law would include 
the, the, the judgment that's going to happen in the future. Like when Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the ex, uh, exile prophets, they're, they're talking about the fall of Jerusalem, right? They're talking about the future. Oftentimes, they're talking about the coming Messiah too and salvation. So get kind of in your mind, kind of take the idea of prophet away from fortune telling and more like speaking God's word, which of course, God who is, um, uh, he's of all times, right? God can, knows what's going to happen in the future. Uh, so the prophet then, the, the office of prophet is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So, so all the prophets before were just pictures of what Jesus would be. So Jesus ultimately speaks God's word to, to, to God's people to bring faith in their repentance. But the other interesting thing, and maybe the most important thing the prophet does, is that he doesn't talk just to us, but the prophet actually turns around and talks to God. Remember when Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments and he comes down and God says, hey, they built a golden calf, let's destroy them. I'm just going to wipe them out. And Moses says, no. Abraham, same deal. There's all this, the prophets are often interceding, not just from God to man, but also on, the, on behalf of God's people back to God. What does Jesus say to God the Father? Don't look at their sins, right? I've died for them all. This is where Jesus steps in as the ultimate prophet. He's the prophet that all the other ones were ultimately foreshadowing. He's the fulfillment. And ultimately, even Moses said, there'll be a prophet like me from among you. And that's what Jesus is. That's so Jesus fulfilling the prophecy there. But he also saying he's going to be dying in Jerusalem. Uh, cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem, which is an ironic, ironic place to, for them to die. Because what is, Jerusalem is the place where what is? What's, it, what's in Jerusalem that makes Jerusalem significant? The temple of God's people. This is like the capital, the holy place. This is the place to be. And this is where they're killing the prophets? That's not right. It just shows how corrupt things were. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. When Jesus says words twice, he's, he's uh, showing his tender affection. So he's kind here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. This is actually foreshadowing Stephen's death by stoning. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. So there's a picture there of, that, of uh, the chicken at the, with the wings at the bottom. This is actually the seal that's on St. Paul's tomb in Rome. Pretty cool. So you got the hen there trying to gather in, gather in the baby chicks. So he's, you see this, this love of Jesus for the people of Jerusalem, but you are not willing. They're stubbornly rejecting God. Behold, your house is forsaken. Now, what's that mean? What happens in 70 AD? Temple's destroyed. So it's important. So as I was thinking through this, I think we have to make a line here between when Jesus says your house is forsaken, he's not talking about the people of Israel because they're not forsaken. They're the ones who are being saved. We're together as a new Jerusalem. So it's talking about the house being forsaken. It's talking about the destruction, the coming destruction of the temple. And furthermore, if Jesus is bringing this scary law to the Pharisees, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how would have gathered you? Why would he even bother saying that if he's not actually using those words to bring about repentance? Your house is forsaken, the temple will be destroyed. And I tell you, 
you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which furthermore emphasizes that him saying that their house is forsaken is not that they're damned. Because what he just, he says within the same verse that Jesus, when Jesus returns for Palm Sunday, they're going to be saying, many of those joined, joined together in Jerusalem are going to be recognizing who Jesus is and calling out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Palm Sunday. So it's Jesus walking in. We actually will hear this reading on, uh, I think, Advent, Advent 1 reading. Jesus coming in as the Messiah on Palm Sunday is also the, the appointed reading. I think Advent 1 is the gospel. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Should sound familiar to you. When do we sing that? The Sanctus, right before the words of institution. So think about what two hymns are, are, are duct taped together. What two hymns are stuck together at the Sanctus? Holy, 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 holy which is the song of who, where? That's Isaiah. Well, it's the angels, right? But it's, it's recorded in Isaiah. The angel's talking about us what? Well, what's the picture? It's Isaiah in the presence of God in the temple. The angels bringing forgiveness, the, the cherubim taking the burning coal off the fire, touching Isaiah's lips, forgiving the sin. So we get this picture of the presence of God and the forgiveness of the presence of God that we're singing, holy, 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 holy. That's right there. When God is bringing his presence to touch our lips, and we're in the presence of God in the sacrament. See the connection there? But then also recognize this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save now, save us. Blessed is he, this Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord, who's coming to save. So this Jesus who rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday will be the one to go to the cross, to die for the forgiveness of sins, and that's delivered to us in the, in the sacrament. Beautiful picture there. I think we're at time. Any, any questions? We covered a lot to get through 13, but we did it. Uh, any, we have a couple minutes for questions, if there are any. All right. Well, again, welcome to our new members, and we look forward to bringing them into, into uh, fellowship with us in the late service. Uh, Bible study will continue. I, I mentioned that last week. We'll continue the next few weeks. Pastor Bartons and Pastor Schumacher are going to be rotating on a couple of things. And... Um, and we'll resume with Luke 14 next year. <laughs> the Lord be with you.